everybody, welcome to the X Report and happy Father's Day. I am Raven X and alongside me as always is Biggie, aka Ethan Tate, aka somebody who I know can't wait for the football season to get kicked off. How you doing today, Ethan? I'm good, how you doing? And I am making it. My voice is not 100% back yet. It is still struggling, but we're going to make it work. We're going to get through this show. And on today's show, we are going to list the top five players who should be the newest inductees into the Madden 99 Club. We are going to make our predictions for the conference finals for the NBA playoffs. So I'm going to close out the show with our Hell in a Cell predictions. But before we get to any of that, please be sure to check out the Xreport.net. I repeat, the Xreport.net for exclusive sports content written by yours truly and fellow export writers previous episodes of our lovely podcast and our youtube channel entitled the x report so starting things off as always let's talk some nfl news now as we know when it comes to mandatory minicamp this is when we start finding out which players are unhappy with their contract and so far this week there have been two big name corners who seem to be very displeased first of which being patriots cornerback stefan gilmore two years ago was a defensive player of the year he has not made it to mandatory minicamp because of not getting a contract also Xavier howard cornerback for the dolphins who's got 10 picks last year, has not reported to minicamp. So it always begs the question, will these players be traded? Will they get a new contract? And we're going to figure that out right now. So Ethan, if it were up to you, would you rather trade for Xavier Howard or Stephon Gilmore and why? Uh, I think I would go with Xavier Howard simply because like Stephon Gilmore, he had an amazing season. He's a former defensive player of the year. But I feel like um, at the Karen Mummy, Karen Mummy, Xavier Howard is a better option at cornerback. I think he's a better overall player. He also is a guy that, like you just stated, he had ten interceptions. And if you want, if you want something in the corner, you want a guy that when the ball is in the air, he's able to make plays and able to make catches on the ball. So I have to go with Xavier Howard. And I think just like I said, simply because. Defenses, like, because of the rules and things, defenses aren't the way that they used to be in the past. So if you can get a guy that when he gets the opportunity to make a play on the ball and get an interception, I would want that. Fair enough. Um, I would go with Stephon Gilmore. While Xavier Howard had a great year last year, he's kind of hit or miss. While interceptions, of course, when you're playing DB, that's one of the most important stats. But other than that, like, he'll have times where he's just inconsistent. And that's kind of been the story of his career. While he can rack up interceptions on a great year, other times he looks kind of subpar. With regards to Stephon Gilmore, aside from this last year, he's been really great, especially since he joined the Patriots. He was good when he was with the Bills, but his game has really elevated a bit. And plus, he's older, so it's not like you would have to get a brand new, long contract. You'd be able to get something I feel would probably be cheaper and more manageable for the cap, and also just more so a proven commodity. So for me personally, I would say Stephon Gilmore. But between the two, I think it's pretty clear that Stephon Gilmore is more likely to be traded than Xavier Howard. Yeah, and I think that what kind of doesn't help the Dolphins' case is when they last offseason when they brought in Byron Jones and had made him the highest-paid corner, and he clearly got outplayed by uh, Xavier Howard last year. So I'm sure that that's not helping the helping his contract talks. 
All right, let's continue on with some news, and let's talk some quarterbacks, specifically the offensive rookie of the year a year ago. Uh, Justin Herbert, who Drew Brees was at the Chargers practice and said this about him. His physical tools are as good as anybody I've ever seen. He's a great worker. He's got great leadership qualities. He's got a lot of intangibles. The sky is the limit for a guy like him. Like I said, he was last year's offensive rookie of the year, threw for over 4,300 yards, which ranked sixth in the league, and 31 passing touchdowns, which set a rookie quarterback record so going into his sophomore year do you expect him to have a better year or do you think he's going to hit a bit of a sophomore slump I think he might hit a bit of a sophomore slump simply because we both know that when you're a rookie in the NFL especially as a quarterback it's hard for defenses to pick up on your tendencies because there's not much film about you and now these defenses they're going to have a year's worth of family years worth of tape to look at to understand your tendencies to understand the way that you the things that you are good at being doing, the things that you do when you're comfortable, the things that you struggle with doing when you're uncomfortable. So I think he's going to have a bit of a sophomore slump, but I still think overall he's going to have a pretty decent season just because of the nature of the NFL. Like, he's a more quarterback-generated, dominated league, and they also give better rules towards the offense. So I think he's still going to have a good season, but I don't think he's going to have this, like, super spectacular season. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you on there. I think that he had a really nice showing as a rookie, but I think that there are still ways that he can improve going into his second year. And like you said, the NFL, when you're a rookie, there's not as much tape on you. You're just kind of going on a case-by-case basis. But with another year under your belt, defenses are going to be able to figure out, particularly in his own division, where he played pretty solid as against um, everybody, including the Chiefs, where they won the Week 17 game. But you could, of course, make the argument that Patrick Mahomes didn't play. But I do think that he's going to take a bit of a slump. I think that, like you said, I think he still has a solid year. But I think that with the new coaching staff, I think that that's going to create some changes with the offense. I think that – like I said, defense is going to be able to figure out him out a bit more. And But a positive for him is his offensive line is much improved from where it was a year ago. So I do think that he won't get hit, hit as much, but I do still think that there will be a slight drop-off. But speaking of drop-offs, let's talk Le'Veon Bell, who Twitter fingers are a thing. And as we all know, this past few weeks, he's been talking a lot of stuff with regards to his time with the Jets and Andy Reid and the Chiefs. Um, and then he recognized after all the backlash he got, included from former Chiefs players like Tyron Matthew, that maybe he made the wrong decision. Um, on his comments, one of the tweets he said was, I said what I said, and I don't regret at all what I said. Just understand, I also have my right for how I feel about my personal problem with dude because of what he said to me. So after a while, Andy Reid did eventually respond by saying, I enjoyed my time with him. I'm pulling for him. That's how I roll. To which... Uh, Le'Veon replied, LOL, that's cap, but it sounds good. So, in your opinion, Ethan, whose side do you want? Do you think that Andy Reid is just genuinely a good guy and Le'Veon Bell is taking out his frustrations on him? Or did Andy Reid actually do something to slight Le'Veon Bell? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Andy Reid did actually do something to slight him. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe... In the process of him being signed, he told him, like, hey, we're going to give you X amount of carries. And then once Clyde Edwards-Hilaire got injured, they stopped giving him carries simply because they found something that they were um, they were more comfortable with. So I wouldn't be surprised at that. I don't think it's a situation where Andy Reid is a bad guy particular. I think it's just he's a head coach. He has to make decisions that best help him win games. And if he feels like Le'Veon Bell – is a player in a position that 
position and didn't help him win games and he didn't want to go with him, then of course he's not going to play him. So I think that's what happened. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. I think that it may be a similar situation to that. Um, I think something that should be taken note that I think, of course, when he first got signed by the Chiefs, everybody was losing their minds. Oh, my gosh, the Chiefs offense just got so much better. They're the NFL version of the Warriors, yada, yada, yada. But they're such a pass-heavy offense that his best impact would have come from in the passing game. And he really wasn't much of a factor there. Yeah, when you mentioned when Clyde Edwards-Hilaire got hurt, they went to – they went to Daryl Williams, a guy who, in terms of talent, you wouldn't think that he would be on par with Le'Veon, but he outplayed Le'Veon Bell on his touches. And so I think that I, I do think it was probably a situation of he went into Kansas City with all intents, like, oh, I'm going to revitalize my career. I'm going to be a big focal point of the offense. And then push comes to shove, and it's like he wasn't even there. I don't even think he got a snap in the Super Bowl, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think he did, no. Yeah, and so I'm sure that may make him feel a way, especially for a guy who's trying to revitalize his career. I'm sure he went into that situation thinking, oh, I'm going to revitalize myself. Somebody's going to want me because I'm going to ball out with the Chiefs, maybe get a Super Bowl, and then that doesn't happen. So I do think that it probably was a situation like that, but I do think that I'm in agreement with Le'Veon in terms of he found – he used social media as a way to voice his frustrations, but as we all know, especially when you're in the public eye, you're only hurting yourself because not many teams are going to want to put up with you every time you feel some type of way you run to social media, your Twitter fingers are going, as opposed to dealing with it like a mature person and talking to that person directly as opposed to letting the whole world know you got a problem. But speaking of problems, Madden does not have one anymore as they have released their cover athletes. It is the MVP edition, which is kind of awkward because the current league MVP is not on there. Instead, it is Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes. So first things first, what are your thoughts on the new Madden cover? Uh, I'm surprised simply because, like you stated, like if you are going to it's a quote-unquote MVP cover, and you guys don't have the current MVP. Like last season, they used to have the current MVP on the Mark Jackson on the cover. Why is it that this season it's no Aaron Rodgers? Is it because he's going through this um, contract situation with Green Bay? Is it a situation where you guys think that he, you won't have him on the cover simply because he's going to be playing this year? Like, who knows? But I think that it's asinine to have a quote-unquote MVP edition and have not have the actual MVP of the league on the cover. And also being honest, I think that the person that should be on the cover, I'm pretty sure you might be in some agreement with me, is Derrick Henry. Absolutely. This man this man had one of the most historic seasons in the NFL. And he had two thousand rushing yards. And the thing of it is is like he's a fresh face. Like being honest, the whole Tom Brady Patrick Mahomes thing it's played, in my opinion, it can kind of get played out because it, every time you talk about NFL or the NBA, you talk about one of those two guys. You either, it's the constant narrative of is Tom Brady going to hit this wall? And it's like people are calling Patrick Mahomes a GOAT, but he's only a what, like he's fourth or fifth season in the NFL. How can you be a GOAT? You've only won one championship. Right. And like, I don't understand. Like, when they dropped the little trailer and they said it's two goats, to me, I thought it was going to be, like, a current player and a legend. And, honestly, the current player could have been Tom Brady, but I thought it could have been, like, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning or, like, another great quarterback or another great position receiver, position player. But it's like, 
how is Patrick Mahomes considered a GOAT when his career is still kind of like in the infancy phases of it? Right. Like, I don't get that. But I definitely feel like the cover athlete should have been there again. Yeah, I know when uh, you said it to me over Instagram, I told you that I thought it was honestly should have been Derrick Henry as well. I'm in agreement with you on that front just because, like you mentioned, I mean, like you said, we get sick of hearing. We know that the NFL is a quarterback-driven league, but at, there are more than more quarterbacks than Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady. Throughout Tom Brady's regular season, let's be honest, if he did not win a Super Bowl this year, he would not be on that cover. That's just – it's a fact. And then if you look at Patrick Mahomes, I mean, he had a fine year, but he didn't win the Super Bowl. He wasn't Super Bowl MVP. He was not the best quarterback last year. That was Aaron Rodgers. And honestly, I don't think it was really that close of an argument. And I understand if they didn't want to do Aaron Rodgers because the potential uh, the contract dispute and everything. But, I mean, if you're going to say MVP edition, if you're going to highlight the best of the best that the league has to offer, why not do somebody who wasn't just on the cover in the last five years? Because a couple of years ago, it was um, Patrick Mahomes, and I think it was 2017 it was Tom Brady. Yeah. Yeah, so within the last few years, both of them have been on the cover. And I know that necessarily people aren't going to buy a game just because of the cover. But it's like, isn't this an opportunity to try to build up new stars, to give credit to players who have gone above and beyond like a Derrick Henry? I mean, last year with Lamar, that was a great accomplishment. He talked about how important of a meaning that was to him. So why continue to put the cover on guys who just had this accomplishment, who've already known the feeling? Especially because it's not like people are going to see, oh, Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, and they're going to jump to buy the game more. So I personally think that you should highlight other people who have done ex- exemplary things like a Derrick Henry. And so, like I said, I'm really surprised Derrick Henry wasn't on the cover, especially because there is it's been a bit – it's been since Antonio Brown, since the skill position player, was on the cover. So, no, I definitely thought Derrick Henry should have been on there. But, all right, so let's talk the 99 club. Who are five players you feel like should be a part of the 99 club? Derrick Henry. Yeah. Travis Kelsey, Devontae Adams, Patrick Mahomes, and Aaron Donald. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's pretty much my list too, except I would go D-Hop over Devontae. Even though Devontae Adams is great, like he had a great year, but overall I think D-Hop is still a better wide receiver. And so I would still go D-Hop over Devontae. But everybody else, I mean, I think that's pretty easy. I think you pretty much – I'm not saying every player who's the best at their position should be 99. But if it is undisputed they are that guy that year, I think that it's no – it shouldn't be much of a debate, and especially for Aaron Donald. I mean, if you made an argument for every year Madden came out, he was a 99 – I don't think many people really argue with you on that just because he's the best defensive player in the league and has been that for years. Patrick Mahomes, great quarterback. I know we said we didn't think he was should be on the cover, but, I mean, he's still a great quarterback. Derrick Henry was the best back in the league last year, and it wasn't necessarily close. Travis Kelsey, best tight end in the league. And based off last year, it wasn't really close because George Kittle got hurt. But, yeah, I'm in agreement with you. But all right, let's play a game of believable or buffoonery. So this week on Get Up ESPN, Lewis Riddick, a former front office personnel, said this of Washington. He said, Washington's for real. To me, they're the clear-cut favorites in the NFC East. Clear-cut. Believable or buffoonery? Washington are easily the favorites in the East. I think it's believable because 
they have a lot of things already in tow that, in my personal opinion, other teams in that division don't have. They have a top five defense, something that the Cowboys don't have, something that the Eagles don't have, something the Giants have a good defense, but they don't have a top five defense. They also have offensive weapons. They have Antonio Gibson. They have um, Terry McLaurin. They also just signed Curtis Samuel. Like, they have offensive weapons. The only thing that they're lacking, in my opinion, is a tight, a reliable tight end and a reliable quarterback. But the thing of it is, is like, you know, they it's been rumbling that Trey, um, what's his name? Taylor Heineke. Heineke. Yeah, Taylor Heineke. Like, he might be the real deal. Like, they are saying that he's making plays and trying to count. And also, the thing of it is, is like, they have his magic. We know that his magic, he's very up and down, but it's like when he's when he's up, he's up there. And he's a guy that can win you games. So I think that, the, that it, it can be very believable that they are the best team in the NLC. On paper, I would say that they're the best. Yeah, I'll say that. On paper, I'd say they're the best team in the division, but I don't think it's clear cut that they're going to win. Like, even though they have the best roster right now, how many years have it been where – the Cowboys or the Eagles had the best roster, and they don't win the division. I think that the NFC East probably is the most wide-open division in the NFL just because there's just so many – every team has a flaw. And it really comes down to the question of, okay, the quarterback situation is pretty questionable in Washington. Do you trust them more than you trust the shoddy defense of – well, I take it back. The quarterback situation in Washington, is that better or worse – than that of the Giants. Who, which quarterback do you trust more, Fitzmagic and, and or Taylor Heineke or Daniel Jones? Because if you want to make an argument, I mean, offensively, I think that the, sec- the Giants' offense at full health is better. And then you look at their defense, their defense isn't, could say, isn't as far off as Washington compared to teams like Philly and Dallas. And then you have to factor in the offense of Dallas, because even though I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm a – Dak Prescott fan of his game, or I think he's all that great. But, I mean, they've historically been able to put up points. It's just their defense hasn't been able to stop anybody. And Philly is one of those weird teams where you don't really know what they're going to be. So, in the NFC East, I think it's hard to say which team is just definitely going to win just because there's so much up in the air. But as of right now, I think they're the best team. But I'm not going to die on a hill to say that I think it's a clear-cut favorite. All right, but let's talk about another division that isn't necessarily as wide open, and that's the AFC West with the Las Vegas Raiders. Derek Carr this week um, was asked about his intents for the future with the Raiders and said this, I'd probably quit football if I had to play for somebody else. I am a Raider for my entire life. I'm going to root for one team for the rest of my life. It's the Raiders. So I just feel that so strong in my heart. I don't need a perfect situation to make things right. So... Realistically, do you think that Derek Carr will spend his career as an Oak, I mean, a Las Vegas Raider? Um, I think you can have some truth to it because Derek Carr, he is a he isn't a bad quarterback. I know that he's had some bad moments, especially the year that he came back from that gruesome injury that he had, and mm-hmm. he received a lot of flat for But since he's gotten back healthy, like specifically last season. He did some great things. He received a lot of criticism because of the record. But the honest, the truth of it was, it wasn't his fault. 
he was doing what he had to do on the offensive side of the field. They had one of the worst defenses in the NFL, and the defense gave up a, a, like 30 points a game, basically. It wasn't his fault. He was producing when he was on the field. So, honestly, especially with the way the quarterbacks are playing and playing for, like, teams for X amount of years, like, I could definitely see him being a Raider for a very long time. I think that he's the Raider, at the very least, for the foreseeable future. But I think that I don't think he's going to be a Raider for life. Reason, main reason being, just a few years ago, they gave John Gruden a $10 million, I mean, 10-year contract. If you give a coach that long of a contract, you are doing so with the intent that you are going to see results. Thus far, since he's been a part of the team, they have not made the playoffs. They've been relatively average. Derek Carr has not been bad, but in terms of the other quarterbacks around him, he's not putting his team in position to win. It's kind of He's kind of similar to Kirk Cousins in that way, to where his numbers aren't bad. He's not the biggest problem on the team, but can you win with this guy? And that is a question that you really haven't been able to really answer since 2017 when he got hurt the year that they looked that good. And so I think that when push comes to shove, I think there may be a point where both Mike Mayock and John Gruden could find themselves with their backs against the wall needing to make a move to keep their jobs. And if that means moving on from Derek Carr to go a younger direction or maybe even try to trade for a veteran, I can see that happening. And especially because in the NFL, let's be honest, players, well, not not even just the NFL, but sports in general, players love organizations. They say they want to play there forever, but that loyalty is not necessarily instilled in the team. How many times have we seen player DeMar DeRozan, IT saying, oh, we want to stay with the Raptors, want to stay with the Celtics, and then get traded like that. And so I don't think that the loyalty is really there, especially when there are jobs on the line. And especially with them, also with them moving to Las Vegas, that's a bigger market. They're trying to make this a team that is profitable, that people want to see. And right now, I feel like the Raiders are really close to being that team that nobody really cares that much about. Like they'll get that one win over the Chiefs and then get blown out by the Falcons the next week. And so it's that frustrating thing with the Raiders to where I think that big changes are on the on the horizon, especially if they disappoint this year. But keeping it in-house in the AFC West, let's talk the Broncos. Von Miller was asked about quarterback rumors, and he said this. You start thinking, oh, we're going to get Aaron Rodgers or Deshaun Watson. But hold on, wait a minute, we've got Drew Locke. That's who we're running with. To me personally, it kind of sounded like a slot to Drew Locke, like, damn. This all we got. But believable or buffoonery, the Broncos are comfortable going into 2021 with Drew Locke as their starting quarterback. That is buffoonery simply because we know, like, Drew Locke is one of those guys that he has flashes for showing grades, but in those flashes, he also will make boneheaded plays. And I think that because of that, given the fact that they have a, a really good defense with Vaughn Miller and Bradley Chubb, and their pass rush and just a, their secondary, I think that they can make some good strides. I don't think that with Drew Locke at quarterback that they could be the full the team that they fully potentially be. I think if you throw in a Deshaun Watson or an Aaron Rodgers, if you include those guys in their team, like they could reach their full potential and they could very well be a Super Bowl contending team because they already have the skill position players in total already. All they need is the quarterback to lead them and to lead their offense. 
So I definitely believe that they aren't comfortable with you like being their starting quarterback. Yeah, I'm calling buffoonery on that too. I think that is just one of the things where players aren't just don't want to get their hopes up. They're not going to try to tell themselves, oh, we're going to get X, Y, and Z. Like, you just got to roll with what you have. And unfortunately, quarterback is the most pivotal position on a football field. And if your quarterback situation is not right, you're not really going to go anywhere, no matter how great everybody else is. The only cases of that, I mean, the Broncos did see that a few years ago when their defense just was tremendous in 2015. Peyton Manning was in his last year. He was having a down year. Brock Osweiler is Brock Osweiler, but they still pulled it out. But I don't think that – I don't think lightning strikes twice, and I think their defense has potential to be really good, but I don't think it happens with Drew Locke. But, all right, let's talk some NBA. Ethan, your top three takeaways from this last week of action. Top three takeaways are that, honestly, if Kevin Durant and any one of the other big three players were good enough to win, the big three players were, are good enough to win an NBA championship. I think that they sold their soul to get James Harden, and unfortunately they found out because James Harden and Kyrie Irving got injured that – they found out that the depth that they had before they got James Harden was drastically needed because I think the depth that they had before that, if they would have just rolled out with Kyrie and KD and kept their depth, I feel like they would have won the series because basically after that, after they got rid of got James Harden, it was KD, Kyrie, and James Harden with a bunch of guys that they're, they're capable players, but they aren't the like type of thing that you would want them, type of base you would want to have on a championship contender team. Right. Number number two, um, the dog group is Curse looks to be alive and well. This is another year where he's had a had a lead, and it's looking like he might potentially squander their lead in the series and get put out of the playoffs. Uh, I'm a big dog Rivers fan. I like his coaching style. I think he is an amazing coach. But I think that he has to do he has to do something to get over this hump of being the guy that gets up in the series and actually wins the series. Because in my personal opinion, the 76ers are a more talented team than the Hawks. Yes, we know that Joel Embiid is dealing with the injury. But Joel Embiid, even with his injury, aside from really one half of a basketball game, he's shown that he has been the best player at times on the court. Um, I think that they have to reel it in. I also think that if they lose this series, I think it's going to be some, it might be a drastic roster change. I know me and you were talking about it off air. Maybe potentially trading Ben Simmons for the likes of a Damian Lillard or what's the different color in Portland because we know that Portland wants to make some changes, might want to make some roster changes also. And But I hope Doc's able to pull it out because I want to see, I want Philly to make it to the finals. I'm a Joel B fan. I want to see it happen. And number one, uh, I think that it's looking like the playoff P, pandemic P narrative is slowly starting to decrease. He he was able to, he didn't contribute much in the win against Utah, but he was able to contribute something. And he's currently playing a very good game right now against the Phoenix Suns. I'm watching the game. I think he has like 28 points. And maybe this is the um this is the coming out party that we've been expecting to have from Paul George throughout the playoffs. 
right, fair enough. Let's talk our Mamba players of the week. For me, out of the Eastern Conference, I'm going Kevin Durant. I mean, this series, he really put the team on his back, particularly when Kyrie went down. I know that James Harden tried to play, but, I mean, he's hurt, so it's hard to really ask much of him. I mean, he did all that he could. He literally gave everything that he could, especially we have to remember he's coming off a torn ACL, coming off of a year where he didn't play, and he put the team on his back and gave them a real shot to win, even with a subpar bench. So I, I got to go KD as my Eastern Mamba. Yeah, I also have to go KD because the reality is, is if he would have been a inch or two behind the line, they would have won, won that won game. Series. Yeah, well, you were absolutely so right. I definitely have to go with KD. All right, my uh, my Western Mamba. I almost said Terrence Mann, but then I was like, Nah, that's just buying into the hype after one game and that's not what the mom was about so i'm gonna go paul george you mentioned it earlier he's kind of starting to chip away at that playoff p uh satire satirical narrative he's actually starting to really show up in the playoffs particularly when Kawhi leonard since he's been down and so i think that with him being able to step up like you said like he's balling out right now right now he's got 33 points last game had 28 game for that 37 he's really starting to step up his game in the moments that his team needs him the most so I'm gonna go Kyrie for my Western. I mean, not Kyrie. Uh, Paul George is my Western Mamba. I'm actually gonna go with um, Devin Booker. He's a younger guy, and he's showing that currently I feel like he's gonna have to step up in the road load because of Chris Paul and the COVID protocol. But I think throughout the course of this playoffs, he's proven to be a very viable option. Like he's had a lot of games where he's taken over games for the Suns. And I think that he's going to be a crucial part in this series against the Clippers. Yeah. I Another great choice on that. All right. So, first things first, let's congratulate LaMelo Ball for officially being named the league's uh, rookie of the year. Last of the player awards given out this off, this uh, playoff. So, congratulations to him. Also, congratulations to James Jones for being named team executive of the year of the Phoenix Suns. His first year as their GM, 51 and, what, 21 record. Done a great job so far. So congratulations to them. Also, congratulations to the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Boston Celtics for making a trade happen this week. I'll tell you, the NBA is weird because it's really the only league where you'll hear about trades and stuff happening during the postseason. But the Celtics are trading Kimball Walker in the 16th overall pick this year and a second-round pick in 2025 to the Oklahoma City Thunder to bring back Al Horford, get Moses Brown, and a 2023rd second-round pick. This also gives Boston financial flexibility off of the $73 million owed to Kimball Walker with the return of Al Horford. So we kind of talked about winners and losers of this trade, but overall, what are your thoughts? Uh, overall, I think this is a good trade for both parties. I think that for the, I'm going to start with the Oklahoma City. I think that because we all know that they're in the rebuild, they added another pick that, um, to their incredible, like, just, I guess, plethora of picks that they already have. They added another one. And then you just think about it, they were able to get Kimball Walker, a guy that he, was, he wasn't happy in Boston. And we both know that when Shai Gilgis Alexander was at his best, he was being under the tutelage of Chris Paul, one of the great um, point guards in our NBA. And I think that if you're able to pair him with Kimball, who 
in his own right as a great point guard. He might not be as great as a point guard as Chris Paul, but I definitely feel like he could be a great, he's a great point guard in his own right. And we, I just think that for the um, for the Celtics, it's a great pickup because they got rid of Kimba. They weren't happy with Kimba, and Kimba wasn't happy with um, and Kimba wasn't happy with being in Boston. So I think it's a win-win for their situation. They also were able to fortify positions and getting a couple bigs that have good value. Like Al Horford, we know how prominent of a figure he was in Boston from the previous years. He was in the seat. He was there. And then Moses Brown, he's a guy that's young and upcoming to show flash this past season. So I think that that's a good move for them. And also, all it takes for them now is just getting a healthy Jalen Brown and honestly, just finding the starting point guard. And I think that for them, they don't need to look for a guy that is a scoring guard. We talked about this off air. I think they need to look for a guy that facilitates the offense, initiates the offense, gets people to guys the ball in the spot so they best produce and where they best are com- they're most comfortable with scoring and going from there. And just being able to get that guy that can also be able to knock down shots. Like finding the guy that is not so much a liability offense to where you can just sag off of them being a guy that can still take the offense as well. I feel you. All right, so um, I'll start off with the Celtics. Um, I'm actually in agreement with you. I think that big getting a reliable big has been a problem for them in these last few years, and I think that bringing back Al Horford and seeing the talents of Moses Brown, who had some really good games with the Thunder last year, I think that, one, it allows them to have a really nice fit, and then also it kind of helps to cushion that blow a bit. We know that they have solid depth. We know that Jason uh, Tatum and Jalen Brown, when healthy, are a very formidable young duo in the league. Like you said, now it just comes down to finding that point guard, a position that they really – Honestly, if you ask me, they have not had a great stalwart mainstay at point guard since Rajon Rondo. IT played tremendous for them in his time there. He was their best point guard since then in terms of like long in terms of impact. But I mean, they brought in big names like a Kyrie that didn't work out. Kimba didn't work out. So I think that they really just need someone they can trust. Like you said, not necessarily the best scorer, but somebody who could really have an impact. Like for example, I think that Lonzo Ball will be a nice fit. Overall, I talked, I told you this. I think that overall CP3 will be a perfect fit. But realistically, in terms of how much asking price and just getting somebody younger, I think that Alonzo Ball will fit. He's a great distributor. He's solid on defense. He wouldn't have to – he's getting better offensively to where, like, defenses wouldn't be able to just forget about him. But it also create opportunities for his teammates. So I think that would be a nice fit for him if he was to leave New Orleans. Um, and with regards to the Thunder, I mean, you pretty much hit it on the head. They're able to add more picks to a team that I think – every year is just going to bring in more and more young talent. And I think that there's a blessing and a curse with having so many draft picks because the blessing is you're able to bring in that young talent. But then because you keep bringing in so many new people and so many new faces, it's hard to really create that identity because you don't know what your identity is yet. And because they have so many draft picks stacked up for the next few years, it's like it's going to be a brand new team. And who's really going to be the leader? Shy is a great player, but – 
we saw we saw last year and this year honestly that without having that leader in CP3 they're kind of missing something so he may be their best player but that doesn't mean that he's able to take over the main leadership role so I think it's kind of a blessing and curse with that so bringing in a player like Kimba who is a respected veteran who is a bit more of a scorer than CP3 was I think it kind of brings a boost to them brings in that veteran presence and kind of allows them to have some more flexibility in terms of what they do at point guard but all right so let's talk playoff teams. Kawhi Leonard suffered an ACL injury. The uh, the magnitude of said injury so far is still to be determined. But as far as we know, he will not be traveling to Phoenix for these first two games. So and it's still to be determined if he is going to be able to come back. On the flip hand side for the Suns, CP3 is out indefinitely at the very least for this game for breaking uh, health and safety protocols and testing positive for COVID-19. Now, Ethan, for some reason, let's say neither player was able to play this series. Which one is the bigger loss to their team? I definitely think it's Chris Paul because we know that because of his, since his acquisition, he, could, he changed the whole culture of their team. Before Chris Paul got there, this team was the worst team in the Western Conference, probably arguably the worst team in the NBA. And he was added to their team, and now they are basically in the Western Conference Finals. And they have a chance to make it to the Finals the first time in the history of their franchise. So I definitely got to go with Chris Paul. I'd go with Chris Paul as well. I think that, like you said, I mean, he changed the momentum of that organization. They went from a team that pretty much one could argue was wasting Devin Booker to a team that is now in the Western Conference Finals, and I don't think that happens without Chris Paul there. And so I'm in agreement with you, especially because even though Kawhi is a great player, he's not the vocal leader or the or I guess the presence that a Chris Paul is, especially for a young team. And we're seeing that one could argue that the Clippers have really stepped up their game since he's been gone. And for Chris and for the Suns, this game is really the first time they're really seeing action without CP3 in the lineup. So if he can't go at all this series, I'm agreeing. So I think it's going to be a tough one out. But let's talk, speaking of things going out, there were multiple coaches firings or uh, parting of ways, quote unquote, um, around the league this week. So far, Rick Carlisle stepped down from being the head coach of the Mavericks. The Scott Brooks has parted ways with the um, Wizards. Sam Van, Stan Van Gundy was let go. Um, am I forgetting anybody else who got fired this week? I think that's it. Stan Van. Okay. Yeah, Terry. Yeah, Terry Stotts. But that was last week. I'm trying to think of this week. But okay, so. As of right now, here are the open head coaching jobs in the NBA. The Wizards, the Pelicans, Pacers, Trailblazers, Mavericks, Magic, and Celtics. So what we are going to do is rank each of the head coaching openings from least desirable to most desirable. Ethan, do you want me to go first or you can go? Uh, I'll let you go first. All right, so starting off with number seven, I'm going to say the Orlando Magic. We talked about it last week when the, they fired their head coach, Steve Clifford. This is a team that really has no direction. There's no real – there's no will – no one knows what they're doing, and I think that without much leadership and not a whole bunch of draft picks to really kind of turn the tide, it's hard to really know what the Magic have to offer. So I would say that's the least desirable – uh, number six, I said the New Orleans Pelicans. While I think that coaching Zion is very intriguing, 
I mean, if he really is, we know that his family is frustrated, which we'll get to after this, but if Zion's really frustrated, then who's to say that he's going to be there much longer? Who's to say he won't start holding out or start demanding, making trade demands? Also, the rest of the roster is kind of in flux, whether it be Brandon Ingram having hit or miss games or Lonzo Ball thinking he's more of a star than he actually is. The Pelicans, I feel like, they have the young talent to be an intriguing spot, but it's still kind of hard to know what they actually will be. Uh, number five, I have the Dallas Mavericks. I think that Luka Doncic is amazing. I think that we're not too far off from him being the best player in the league. With that being said, that that's still another team that, like, we know that they can make the playoffs, but how far they can go is still up in the air. Christos Porzinga seems to be unhappy. Their bench is kind of so-so, especially after trading Seth Curry. Uh, Tim Hardaway is kind of hit or miss. So they're a team that, once again, the prospect of coaching Luka sounds great, unless the reports of him you know, having issues with the front office are true. But it's still like you have a much tougher road ahead of you being in the West. And you also have to try to make sure that you're building this into a contender to make it a team that Luca wants to stay on that because he feels like they have potential of winning. Uh, num- next up, I have the Indiana Pacers. We talked about it last week. I think that in the Eastern Conference, anything is really possible. And they have a lot of talent on their roster, whether it be uh, TJ Warren, who – thrived in the bubble, but injuries kind of slowed him down. Miles Turner, who at times looked like he could have been a candidate for Defensive Player of the Year. Malcolm Brogdon. They have guys like that, and Karis LeVert as well, who you feel like you can really build around and who you feel like they just need one more step to really be in the conversation of being one of the better teams in the East. And I think that for a coach that really wants to kind of prove himself, not necessarily start from the bottom, but get a team that just needs a little bit more, I think that that could be an intriguing process process and like I mentioned they're in the Eastern Conference so it's a much easier hill to climb as opposed to doing it in the West number three the Washington Wizards this comes with the caveat of if you're able to keep Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal if both of those cats stay I think that the Wizards would be a really fun team to be a part of because you just need a big if you can find another big to um, pair with Daniel Gifford I think that this is a team that can really thrive because as we saw they started off the year with having a terrible record, injuries were kicking their butt. It was a rough time out just about every game. But as they began to learn their roles, as they began to better understand what they could do and the talents of Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal were on display at the same time, we saw that the Wizards were a team that had potential. And so I think that they, if you're a coach and you're able to bring in one more player who is on par with them, if not maybe a step below, I think that this could be a team that could make some noise next year Two, Trailblazers. This also comes with the caveat of it's not a complete blow-up of the roster. Like, if I think if you keep Damian Lillard, then I think that you're able to – it's going to be a lot easier than not having Damian Lillard. But I think that if you're able to find a way to keep Dame and CJ, maybe Robert Covington too, and then bring in other cats, maybe make some trades for defensive players, I think that the Trailblazers can kind of get back on track and kind of get out of this purgatory that they're in. And then number one – I say the Boston Celtics. Now, this is going to be a bit of a tougher job if you're a black coach because, let's be honest, Boston fans are not the nicest to black coaches and black players. So that would be a bit of a challenge. But, I mean, Jason Tatum is a star, and I think that it's really clear that he's just a few ways – 
maybe at most maybe two or three years away from being considered one of the best players in the league. Jalen Brown just continues to get better, especially with this recent trade. They're starting to hit that big position. And I think that if you're looking at Boston, I think that of the other teams available, they're the most ready-made to make a deep playoff run. So for me, um, the most undesirable team, I'm agreeing with you, the Orlando Magic. They're a team that they have some intriguing pieces in, you know, this dynamic, this upcoming dynamic backcourt of R.J. Hampton and Cole Anthony, but I think that they still have a long way to go before their desired destination for coaches. Um, the second least most desirable, I'm actually going to say the Washington Wizards, simply because it's a lot of uncertainty around that team. Like, we don't know if... Bradley Beal or Russell Westbrook is going to be traded. We don't know what that's going to look like. We also don't know that they have holes in their roster that, you know, needs to be taken into account for because they, it's basically this whole past season, it was Russell and Bradley combining for like 60 and 80 points together and Russell averaging a triple-double but it was like, this all that was on the offense. No, the Next team, I would have to say, is the New Orleans Pelicans, simply because this is a roster that it has no true direction. Like, you have a player in Zion, who is the dominant figure, who is probably the most dominant player in today's game, outside of Joel Embiid, who is a significant paint presence. But you have a you have a roster with another paint presence in Stephen Adams. You need spacing for that. You have guards in Lonzo Ball and Eric Bledsoe that have similar games. They're great defenders and they're great penetrators, but they aren't the best of shooters. Lonzo, he's a better shooter now than he has been in seasons past, but you need spacing for a guy with Zion's talents. You also need, um, you have Brandon Ingram, who, like you just said, he's very inconsistent. So... I think they have a lot of work to be done. Um, the next team I would say is the Indiana Pacers. They, in my opinion, they're one of the teams that are more ready-made to make playoff runs because they have been in the playoffs in the past, especially with their roster already in place. I just think that they need somebody to help them get over that hump. Like, they have a talented roster. I think they just need the right coach to put everything together for their team. Then I would say the I would say the Dallas Mavericks simply because like you said, they have a lot of roster um a lot of roster turmoil also, but they have the best player right now out of all the teams in my opinion. Maybe outside of Dane. They have all the they have the best superstar player out of all the teams that we just named. And I think that once you have that type of talent, that can make up for a lot. But the, also the caveat to that is, is it's been reports that coaches are very frustrated with coaching Luca. So if you have a first, if you have a situation where coaches aren't able to coach the best player and this issues with coaching the best player, how do you go about it? Um, how do you go about making winning plays and things for this team. I also would say, then I would say the Portland Trailblazers simply because with, if the roster is intact or if they make significant decisions outside of trading Dame and CJ, 
then you could potentially have a championship caliber roster. But if it's with the current roster that they have, or if they trade Dame or CJ, then I, my position on that will completely change. But my top team is definitely the Boston Celtics. But then, as you stated, they are a playoff-ready built team. They're just missing a couple pieces. They're missing a point guard. They just added two good big men to to this team. They already kind of have some depth, and they have they already have two established go-to players. So those are that's what I would put in. Yeah, I think that. Pretty much, like, when it comes to the top, we're, we're just about the same. But um, speaking of Zion and the Pelicans, apparently, after just two years, Zion's family wants him out of New Orleans, uh, per Shams of The Athletic. Uh, family members of Zion Williamson want him on a different team to the displeasure with the Pelicans organization. Stan Van Gundy was one of the factors his, of his family's criticism, who they felt was too rigid and demanding as a head coach. His family is also unhappy with the Pelicans organization as a whole for not living up to what they, should, what they feel should be the standard for a star like Williamson. So... Realistically, let's be honest, you and I kind of talked about it off the show, but you you made a really good point about it it takes as a rookie or at least on your first couple of years, a team is not going to drop everything to build around you. You have to prove that you're a star in order for them to build you up like a star. And while Zion has been playing great, he had a great year, but injuries have come literally at the worst times, particularly when it's towards the end of the year and they can compete for a playoff spot. And they're a team that really does not have much direction. And so you can be the best player on a team, but if you're a team that really does not have much direction, still currently trying to find a new head coach and still just trying to find out what your actual place is, not to mention what you're gonna do with the rest of your roster, I think that the frustrations of Zion really are not at the top of your list, or at least the frustrations of his family. Yeah, I think I just think that like it comes a it's a big price tag that comes with being a top overall pick. Nine times out of ten, you are going to go to a very bad team, um, and it's a lot of difficulty surrounding that. Like the Pelicans, they were a very bad team. Before Zion got there, now that Zion is there, they're still a very bad team. They just are a an exciting, very bad team to watch. Um, they like, like I said, they have to make in order for that team to work. I think they have to make a specific choice decision. They have to surround Zion with a lot of shooters, and you, I would say you have to keep Brandon Ingram simply because he's a guy that can create on the perimeter. But you have to play a specific brand of basketball, and the way that their roster is currently constructed, it's nowhere near that. So I definitely would say that like, I understand this frustration, but it's also like, hey, you sometimes you can't be put in a situation where you know you always get uh, instantaneous success. Like, look at the Memphis Grizzlies. This is a team that a lot of people assumed was going to be one of the worst teams in the NBA. But when you look at their roster, they have a lot of good competent pieces that gel well together. It starts with John Morant. He's the best player on the team. Then Jared Jackson, yes, he had a bad season since he's come back. Not even a bad season. He had a very up and, big up-and-down season since he came back from his meniscus injury. 
but the thing is, with that injury, it's always a two-year process for the fully for a person to fully look like the way they look like before they injury. So, and then you have a cop, Jonas Valentunas. He's a veteran player that can. It's a presence that when you need a steady presence, when you need something positive, he can provide it. You have a Kyle Anderson who's a veteran presence. You have a Tyus Jones, and then they have a bunch of young guys like and Dylan Brooks, who's a fiery up-and-coming two-way defender that can score and defend at a high clip. Then you have you draft that Desmond Bain, who led all rookies in three-point shooting. You have Grayson Allen, who when he when he's healthy and when he's playing, he was able to make shots. Like, they have a specific identity already set in place. It is, you have Ja, who is the head the head of the snake. He made, Where he goes, the engine goes. He creates... You also have Jaron Jackson, who he fits, his playing style fits well with John Morant. Like, Jaron is a dominant, when he's healthy, he was a 42% three-point shooter. And you can pick and rolls and pick and pops, and he can also spot up outside the wing out on the perimeter and give John room to drive. When you look at the New Orleans Pelicans, you don't have any of that. You don't. You have a roster that's kind of just like this hodgepodge group of guys they just put together. And it's like, hey, let's go play basketball. Yeah. And I think that's something that is kind of lost on everybody. Like, when we think of the great players, we have it in our heads that, oh, they they did it by themselves. And that's not true. No one player can do it all by themselves. We just saw it with uh, KD in the East – in the uh, second round of the playoffs. No matter how great you are, what your numbers are, if you do not have a team that at least can complement your abilities or at least can carry their own weight and can produce, it's not going to work. Jai landed in a situation where not only were there some pieces like that already in place, but they also built, brought those pieces in that complemented him. Whereas in with uh, New Orleans, they haven't really done that with Zion. And so I can understand his family's frustration on the one hand, but you also have to realize this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Like, I think that it's really – I think it's ridiculous to think that as soon as your your kid or your what a relative gets into the league, like, all of a sudden it's all going to be about him. They're only going to have success. It's never going to be bad. And I don't think that's the case. Like, yeah, sure, maybe it was not a, the right fit with – um. Stan Van Gundy, but in a realistic tip, I mean, this is still a team that has a lot of work to do. They're not ready to be a contender. And while Zion is putting up great numbers, I don't think that that magically just makes them into a great team. And that's something the league and just fans, especially casual fans, have to understand is just because one player on a team is putting up great numbers does not mean that they're just going to inevitably have success. It's not realistic. But all right, let's play Believable or Buffoonery NBA Edition. So let's start off with Ty Lue. Um, So Richard Jefferson, former player in the NBA, tweeted this out after the um, after the Clippers made it to the Western Conference Finals. He said, Cleveland, 50-year drought. The answer, Tyron Lue. The Los Angeles Clippers, 50-year drought. The answer, Tyron Lue. One of the top five coaches in the league right now. Give him respect. Believable or buffoonery, Ty Lue was a top five head coach in the league. For me, it's a hard hell no, but. Yeah, it's definitely a no. I think that he could probably, he has a case for maybe top 15. And when I say top 15, he's on the lower half of that list. Right. But it's definitely, he's not a top five coach. Yeah. And I think that, sure, he said, oh, well, top five, he did this. But let's be honest here. That was LeBron. <laughs> In Cleveland, that was LeBron. Ty Lue just so happened to be sitting on the bench wearing a suit. 
That was LeBron's doing. And with the Clippers this year, I mean, they just got a stellar performance out of Terrence Mann and Paul George stood stood up. I don't really think, like Ty I'm not going to sit here and say that he can't coach. Do I think he's a better coach than Steve Kerr? Yes. But I think that he's also in the same class as Steve Kerr in the sense of you get a superstar and you ride that superstar. Like, and it's clear that when those superstars aren't playing, you can clearly see who can coach and who cannot because we saw how much the Warriors struggled when Steph was out, when Clay was out, when Draymond was out. And we've seen the same things in Cleveland when Ty Lue was, in, uh, was up there. He didn't even last a whole season after LeBron left. He left fairly early. I think it was less than 20 games into the year he was gone. So, no. Yeah, so no. He's not top five. I'm not even going to entertain him being top five, but – it's cute that you think so. All right, we talked about Luca, and I made the statement about him potentially being a fr- problem for the front office, something that sounds a bit weird, but there are some reports that kind of substantiate it. Um, after the reports came out uh, that was saying poor relationships Luke Dunchick has with key members of the franchise could impact his current desire to remain in Dallas long term, Mark Cuban to which replied, that's total bullshit, but shortly thereafter, we mentioned Rick Carlisle stepped down from the team after 13 seasons and after 24 years the team has parted ways with Donnie Nelson who was their former general manager so believable or buffoonery Luka Dunchik is starting to become a problem for higher ups yeah I definitely think it's believable simply because like he's a very talented player don't get me wrong but some of his antics like he even spoke on it before the playoffs started where he spent more time winding to the west to the rest than actually playing basketball and that's the thing of it like you can't be in these situations like this thing that turns people off like we're expecting you to perform and you're spending your time crying and we also don't know the type of things that he does behind the scenes. I feel like Luke is, like, you take the instance of Chris House like, I'm not a big Chris House fan, but I think that the fact that the whole offense has to run through Luca, like, that is very frustrating because you have a guy in Chris House who you made, who you traded for, who you are paying a pretty decent price tag for, and he isn't given the chances to produce because the whole offense runs through Luka. Like, you, I think that he's very, I think it's very much true that he's becoming a headache for people in the higher-ups. And this is not, literally not based off of anything. This is just probably, just a guess by me, but probably with how much success he had in Europe and just the style of coaching and style of play there, probably coming to the NBA, especially that he's found his foot and is playing well, he probably feels like nobody can really tell him anything. He probably feels like, especially because he had so much success while he was in uh, in Europe, that he feels like the way that he does things is how things are supposed to be done. The ball coming his way and every position of the offense going through him is how the game is supposed to be run. And whenever it doesn't go that way, I'm sure he probably does cause he- coaches headaches. I'm sure he does speak on it. I'm sure he's probably, I'm not going to say he's like, well, I'm the best player, but I'm sure he makes mentions of it. Or it's like, well, when I was in Europe, so I wouldn't be surprised if, he kind of brings the way that things were going in Europe and when he was with Lithuania 
I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to put that into the NBA. And for a coach like Rick Carlisle, who had been there over a decade before he even got drafted, I'm sure that can be frustrating, especially because he has a ring. It's not like Rick Carlisle is some guy that just coughed up on the street. Like, he has had success. So I could see that being a bit frustrating. All right, so let's move on. So after game five, um, no, I lied. After uh, game six, where the Bucks tied up the series against the Nets, um, reports were coming out about if Giannis can really be a star, especially after the performance of Chris Middleton. Chris Middleton outscored uh, Giannis, dropped 38-10-5, and five, whereas Giannis still had a good game, dropped 30-17-3. But to, it got to the point where, of course, pundits were giving their two cents, like Kendrick Perkins, who said, Giannis floors well in his role, which is a Robin, and let Chris Middleton be the Batman. So, moving forward, should Giannis keep being the Robin, or is he actually a Batman? He's most definitely a Robin, and the reason I say he's a Robin is because Giannis's game is flawed at best. You, in my personal opinion, you can't be a Batman if it's, you can come up with a simple game plan to stop you. This goes back to Miami, where all they did was they basically created a wall to stop driving. And it's still, it's still the same case to this day. Like, Giannis's game is still very much raw, and it's, no, it's not a lot of skill. It's finding a way to get to the basket, lay the ball up for Dunkey. Like, he's shown he has a couple... He's trying. He's tried to attempt mid-range shots and fade and post up fadeaways and things of that nature, but he just hasn't shown to be anything. Anything is like worth actually being afraid of as a defender. I think that his because his game is so flawed, he can't be a Batman. Because the thing of it is, in a in a clutch in a crunch time situation. If you're down, if you're down one or two, and you put the ball in Giannis's hands, you can't. You the most you can do is if you're down one, you might win the game. But the thing is, like everybody's just gonna sell out to stop the paint. But if you're down two, you won't. All you're gonna expect is to go to overtime because you can't shoot from range. So I definitely think that Chris Middleton should be the Batman because his game is more polished. And he honestly, he's been there for the moments. Like if you think about it, in a lot of situations, Chris Middleton has made a lot of clutch shots for Milwaukee. And he's shown that he's not afraid to take those shots. So I, I definitely agree. Yeah, I think that I like Giannis as a player, but his game, his skill set is flawed. I think that he has a very limited skill set. He can't really do all the things that we see some of the best players doing. We see big men in this form of like Kyrie being able to do, I mean not Kyrie, uh, KD being able to do everything. And then you get a cat like Giannis who is big and strong and can drive. But if he can't drive, that pretty much cuts out the majority of his offense. So I think that in terms of in clutch situations, I do think that it is best for him to play Robin because when the defense is not solely focused on him, it creates those opportunities to drive to the hoop. It creates those opportunities for him to get those buckets because when the defense is just like, all right, create that wall, don't let him get to the hoop, don't let him drive, that pretty much shuts down his effectiveness, unfortunately. Whereas with Chris Middleton, even though if you ask many people if they would want him to be their 
their go-to option on offense, they would say no. But for Giannis and the Bucks, it works out because Giannis is still a powerful cat. He's just not as well-rounded offensively. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think that especially for right now, if the Bucks want to have success, Giannis has to be that Robin. All right, so let's make our predictions for the NBA Conference Finals. Starting with the Western Conference Game 1, the Suns won 120-114. The return dates of both Chris Paul and Kawhi Leonard are still TBD. But if you ask me, I think that I'm going Suns in seven. Yeah, I'm going Suns in seven. Maybe, maybe sooner, depending on how fast Chris Paul gets back. Because the reality of it is, Kawhi has an ACL injury. Like the chances of him genuinely coming back, in my personal opinion, are very slim. Yeah. And if he does come back, the chances of him being the player that he was before he hurt his ACL are even slimmer. So I think that it's sons and whatever, honestly. Yeah, I think that – I just think it's going to be too much of an uphill climb. And like you mentioned with Kawhi, I mean, he's still technically a free agent this upcoming year. And so it begs the question of, especially if he feels like the series is already lost, would it be worth him risking a potentially even worse injury and then having to sit out this upcoming year? Would you really want to put yourself through that? And I would say no. And I think that with the Suns, especially once Chris Paul comes back, I think that even though Patrick Beverly is a solid player, I mean, I just – he's not really going to be able to do much with CP3 because CP3 just sees the court. He has the best court vision of anybody in the league we've seen in some time. And I just think that he's going to be able to exploit those matchups. And while Paul George, like we both mentioned, is kind of nipping away at that narrative and the joking of playoff P, I do think that Devin Booker is really going to be able to shine as well as DeAndre Ayton over the Clippers. So, yeah, I got Suns in that one. All right, so before we can really say make our Eastern Conference picks, we got to pick Game 7, which takes place tonight. Hawks or 76ers, who you got? I got 76ers. You know, I'm rolling with Philly. I think my guy to will be going to have a dominant game. Uh, I think he's going to probably have 40-plus with double-digit rebounds and, like, three blocks. And I think that Tobias Harris and Seth Curry, they're going to continue to be factors in the game. I don't know what they're going to get out of Ben Simmons. I'm not even really going to talk much about them. But I definitely have, I definitely have Sixers in tonight. Yeah, I, I got Sixers tonight, but kind of – then it kind of begs the question of them going against the Bucks. While I think that there is a solid matchup and while I think that they have – more options outside of their star being Joel Embiid as compared to the Bucks and Giannis. I, that's a tougher series to, series to call for me as opposed to if you look at uh, the Western Conference, just because we see cats, we see the 76ers like fall apart quite a bit. <laughs> it's, it's if Joel Embiid isn't balling out, I mean, who do else on that team do you really trust? Tobias Harris looked good earlier in the playoffs, but he's starting to kind of take a bit of a step back. Seth Curry has those games where he looks good and other times has stepped back. So then we already know Ben Simmons offensively is a liability. So I think that the Eastern Conference is a lot tougher to call. I think that in that case, I think that Joel can't take a night off. I think that Joel would just have to dominate night in, night out for them to do it. And so I think this is going to be a tough series for both sides, but I think I'd go Bucks in seven 
just because I trust the surrounding cast around Giannis a bit more than I do the 76ers. Okay. Yeah. What about you? What do you think? Uh, as far as that series, I think that it's going to be an interesting series. It just depends on who shows up. I think that Philly, they have a good opportunity to actually win simply because you can put Ben Simmons on Giannis and he's a guy that can match the physical tools that Giannis has. He's 6'10", he's 240 pounds. Giannis is 6'11", 255 pounds. Then you also, you have a guy in Joel Embiid who's going to be in the paint, who is a significant paint presence as far as the defensive standpoint. And I think that, honestly, who the the breaking point of it is going to be what what are you going to get out of Tobias Harris and the others? Because I think that Joel, he's going to have a good series. I know that he'll be going up against Brooke Lopez, and that I think Joel and B can dominate Brooke Lopez. I don't think Brooke Lopez is a good defender. I don't understand the narrative that he's been a good defender these past couple years when he basically all he does is the same thing that Rudy Gobert does. He just does it to a lesser degree. But as far as like one-on-one post defense, I think Joel and B can dominate that matchup. I think it's going to be hinged upon the Tobias Harris, the Steph Carey's, the Shake Milton's. I think if you're able to get good games out of those guys at a consistent rate, I can see the 76ers getting the squeezing out with MAB6. All right, fair enough. Now, this is just personal preference before we uh, we move on to the WWE. Which, in your opinion, which blown lead was worse? Game seven for the Jazz blowing that 25-point halftime lead or the 76ers blowing that 28-point lead against the Hawks in game five? Which, in your opinion, which one was worse? It's definitely game seven. And it's simply because more state, yeah, yeah, like and least in a game five, it's like okay, we know we have another opportunity, but in a game seven, you're up that amount of points, it's a and you blow it like that's a drastic thing, there's something that shouldn't happen, so it definitely has to be the Jazz in game seven, yeah, I'm in agreement with you, I think that. The 76ers definitely got clowned more for their blown lead, but in terms of what mattered, I agree about the uh I definitely agree about the Jazz. But all right, let's go ahead and talk WWE. Alright, so let's start this week's uh WWE conversation off with NXT Takeover in your house recap. Once again, I apologize for the state of my voice because I went to a wrestling show in Columbus on Friday and my voice is still not yet recovered. But all right, so here's what happened. MSK and Bronson Reed, even though when, even though they took my man's life, which I'll get to in a bit. Um in a match that pretty much hurt my whole body, Zia Lee showed that she was ready for a takeover. Who say you need to have a million dollars to be the million dollar champ as LA Knight wins the ladder match? Raquel Gonzalez retains and Karrion Cross outlasts them all to retain his NXT title. Overall, I went three for two. Uh, my favorite match, this one was kind of pick hard to pick because I didn't necessarily love any of them, but I'd probably have to say the winner take all um, match. I think that it just showed some of the best work in NXT, I mean, with tag teams, like, when tag teams are great, they're great. And I think that NXT, especially at TakeOvers, allows their tag teams the freedom to really showcase what they can do. And that was really apparent. 
on a Sunday night, so I'd have to go with that one. Uh, my favorite moment was Pete Dunn breaking out of the cross jacket because he's a badass. I mean, I am on the Pete Dunn hype train more than probably anybody else I know, and I'm perfectly okay with that. I love Pete Dunn, and so the fact that he was able to break out of Karrion Cross's submission, the one that actually ended up winning him the match, I think it just shows just how badass he is and how just how great the Bruiserweight really can be once he really gets to take that next step and hopefully become champion. Like I said, hopefully, but who knows. Uh, increase and decrease stock. I'm going to say increase stock, carrying cross. Um, main reason why I didn't think he was going to win was just because I thought he was going to end up going to SmackDown or Raw, preferably Raw, just because they really need him. But, I mean, the fact that he was able to outlast four of the best superstars that NXT has to offer right now, I think that that really just solidifies him as a champ and a dominant one at that. And decrease stock it was kind of hard to really pick one. Um... But I think I'd probably just go Kyle O'Reilly just because he's the one who took the loss. Um, my booking decision, I would have made the ladder match shorter. Typically, controversial opinion. Usually when it comes to ladder matches, NXT don't miss. I mean, they just hit it out of the park every time. But I feel like this one just wasn't as great as its predecessors. And maybe that's on me for kind of comparing it to the Jordan Devlin and Santos Escobar one, which I thought was amazing. And this one just didn't hit the same for me. I didn't really love it. And so my booking decision would have just made it a bit shorter. I feel like it kind of drug on a bit too long had it been shorter. I think that they would have been able to fill more time with other things. Like, for example, I think that uh, Raquel and Ember could have went on a little bit longer. Like matches like that, just because I don't think this match kind of lived up to the hype. Um, and then my WTF moment, like I mentioned earlier, was Bronson Reed killing my man. Like, he just wanted to look at his future title, the title he's going to win someday. And as he's just gazing at it, Bronson Reed just kills him. Like, was that necessary? I don't think that was necessary. Santos was just looking at his future prize and then bam. I think that was a bit rude. But it was funny. Um, and my show grade overall, another controversial opinion. I'm going to give this a C plus. I know that a lot of people probably enjoyed this takeover, and I thought it was fine. But I just think that with NXT takeovers, the bar is just so high. And so, like, to not hit that bar is disappointing. Like, I don't think that it was better than um, Stand and Deliver. I think Stand and Deliver was tremendous. Um, the last In Your House, I enjoyed. I just don't think that it really hit the same notes that the last few takeovers did and you know and so like i said if this were a raw smackdown pay-per-view i'd probably give it a higher grade just because when it comes to those pay-per-views the like i said the bar is a bit lower but with nxt i just expect so much more and overall i just don't feel like this takeover delivered but you know that's just my opinion i'm sure many of you will disagree and i mean hey God bless. That's your right. All right. Now let's talk Hell in a Cell 2021 predictions. Because, yeah, who said that we need to have Roman Reigns and Rey Mysterio on the card? That was that was a weird, weird choice. All right. So starting off with Cesaro versus Seth Rollins. This one seems like a gimme, right? Cesaro just came back. He's trying to get vengeance against Seth Rollins who injured him, blah, blah, blah. But... I have a sneaking suspicion that Seth Rollins is going to find a way to win. Cesaro won at WrestleMania, so he already has that one up on him. But I think that Seth Rollins really hasn't really done much lately since he's returned. And I think this will be a good way to kind of bring him back 
to the threshold, kind of bring him back. Not to say that, you know, his talents are being showcased, but I feel like just kind of put him in that conversation as potentially next contender against Roman or at least just being in the conversation for a world championship. And I think that with, of course, he's not going to win by, like, favorable means. He's going to cheat. But I do think that it'd be a nice bit of a swerve for Cesaro to lose this match but still keep him strong and booking. All right, next up, Kevin Owens versus Sami Zayn. I want Sami Zayn to win. I really, really do. But I don't know. Last time I picked Sami Zayn, he lost. And I'm picking Kevin Owens, one, because I feel like they really don't know what to do with Sami now. And it shows. Preferably, I'd rather have Sammy, but I'm, I'm going to go KO. Next up, Alexa Bliss versus Shayna Baszler. I would love Shayna Baszler to win this match and then start her, you know, independent career of Nia and just go back to being a singles competitor. Is that going to happen? Nah, probably not. Because Alexa Bliss is finally back in the ring for the first time in months. She's really embraced this new persona with the doll and all that jazz. So I think Alexa Bliss is going to end up winning. Do I think it'll be an interesting match? Yeah, just because I feel like it's probably going to be some tomfoolery and shenanigans, which, you know, can be fun. And while I think that Shayna should win, I think that Alexa is going to be the one to walk out. All right, why Raw Women's Championship, Rhea Ripley defending her title against Charlotte Flair. You all know how much I love the queen. Bow down, bow down as we speak. But realistically, Rhea Ripley should retain her title. Um, it Honestly, I could definitely see Charlotte winning this match. And you guys know how I feel about picking against Charlotte at um, pay-per-views just because it seems like I'm always wrong. But in this case, I think Rhea does retain. I think that it's a bit too soon in her reign to just kind of give up on her. And I think that even though I'm very excited to get this one-on-one match because we really didn't see that rematch um, after Charlotte took the NXT Championship away from her, I do think that Rhea will put up a hell of a fight. I think that this arguably will be the best match on the card. And I'm excited to see how it unfolds. But in the end, I got Rhea walking out. All right, next up, the Hell in a Cell match for the SmackDown Women's Championship. Bianca Belair defending her title against Bayley. I got Bianca. But I do think that this match will be very interesting. Bailey has experience in Hell in a Cell matches. She did one last year against Sasha, which was pretty good. And so this is Bianca's first time having a match like this. And I think excluding Royal Rumble, she's only had one specialty match when that was a ladder match for the number one contendership, if I'm not mistaken. Wait, was that her? No. Yeah, I think that was the only other one she's been in that was not like a singles or a tag match. So I think that it'll be interesting to see how she how she uh, withstands the demonic cell. Um, she'll also be the first woman who's not a part of uh, the Four Horsewomen to participate. So I'm really excited to see how that unfolds. But yeah, I got Bianca. I think that this feud is pretty interesting, especially because they haven't brought Sasha back yet. And so it allows kind of Bailey to showcase why she's such a solid heel and Bianca to just be that valiant champion. Like, I'm going to be me regardless. And I think that while... The feud is kind of like, it's entertaining at some points, but it's like, girl, uh uh-uh, to quote Bianca. But overall, I think that Bianca wins, and it kind of puts to bed this whole Bailey thing. All right, and then finally, Drew McIntyre is the main event again. Woo! Hell in a Cell match for the WWE Championship. Bobby Lashley defending against Drew McIntyre. I'm not going to lie to you. This one is actually pretty hard to pick because... On the one hand, Bobby 
you kind of want to keep building him as champion. You want to go and see where that can go. But, I mean, even still since he's been champion, his only real competitor so far has been Drew. You sprinkle in Braun Strowman for a little bit, but realistically it's really just been Drew. And so on the flip-hand side, you have Drew McIntyre, who we experienced him as champion. Not saying he was a bad champion at all, but that was pretty much, we know what he is as a champion, especially if Raw isn't trying to build up new stars. What are they going to do? Put the championship back on Drew and then just keep the ball rolling with, oh, I guess Bobby gets a rematch and then just keep it going to SummerSlam, Money in the Bank. Like, what, what are we doing here? And so this one was probably the toughest uh, match to pick. Um, just because I could really see it going either way. So I'm going to say Bobby retains, but I think that it's it's going to be a grind. I think that it's going to – let's just say I would not be surprised either way. If Drew won, I really wouldn't be surprised as far as Bobby winning – um, I think either way, whoever wins, you have to bring in new competitors. You have to bring in new contenders. This kind of goes back to me saying I thought Karrion Cross was going to lose because I think that he would be a great challenger to either of these cats, whether it be Bobby or Drew. And so looking at the car right now, I just know regardless of the result, I don't have to see Bobby versus Drew McIntyre for a long, long time. But those are my predictions. That was my recap, and this was our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, please be sure to check out TheExportNet. I repeat, TheExportNet for exclusive sports content written by yours truly and fellow export writers. Previous episodes of our lovely podcast and our YouTube channel entitled The Export. Once again, thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time.